Unions ban deadly dust, profits fuel inflation pain, World Teachers Day, and good news for our biggest battery. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. After a two-week hiatus, we are back with episode 153. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me from the Harbour City, that is Sydney, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. And if you are upset about the referendum result and haven't read that book, get onto it because that will help explain a lot of the unexplainable. But even more recently, the narrator of Dusted, ABC Radio National's uh, three-part documentary series about the history of mining and dust diseases in this country, which will be incredibly relevant later in this episode, is my wife, your friend, Van Batham. How are you, Van? I'm all right, Ben. I miss you terribly because I am in Sydney, uh, but we have the miracle of technology to reunite us, which is always extremely exciting. It is exciting. It's amazing, isn't it, that what we can do with technology these days? And, you know, Van, I think it's particularly uh, relevant to some of today's discussions when we talk about what can be done with technology because, of course, the union movement has come out and said that if the governments of Australia will not ban uh, the deadly practice of cutting, grinding and drilling engineered stone, which creates silicosis, uh, and uh, silicosis disease, more than 600,000 Australian workers have already been exposed to this. This kills people, by the way. This is this is a deadly disease. 11,000 people have been diagnosed with cancer as a result of this already uh, because, of course, engineered stone is a technological uh, thing. It's, it's, it's come about through various in, it's engineered stone, right? So it's a product of our modern lives. But it, when we talk about technology, we have to think about how it makes our lives better, not how it exposes workers to risk and death. And if it is doing that, we have to regulate it properly, don't we? Oh, look, we absolutely do. And because I have just come off narrating a documentary about dust and the phenomenon of dusted miners, you can imagine that this is very close to my heart. So silicosis is one of the byproducts of silica mining. And of course, quartz is when quartz is turned into dust in the process of, of mining. Uh, these particular products, if it gets into your lungs, if you develop silicosis, it is incurable. And this disease has actually been with us for a long time and it's what the documentary that I narrated was about, was about the phenomenon of dusted miners when dust not just from silica but from coal but from, of course, asbestos, which is very well known, goes into the lungs and these lung conditions, incurable lung disease, uh, lung conditions are created. It is, is, it's fatal or oh, debilitating. It absolutely destroys the, the human body and the idea that a kitchen bench and these silica, these silica products, these manufactured stones, nothing is worth a worker's health and their life, no product at all. 
And, of course, these diseases, silicosis has been with us for a long time. It used to be called myonistitis in Australia. And I want to give people a context for the way that we have dealt with lung diseases in miners for the hundreds of years that we've been mining in Australia, is that when silicosis emerged and became like a, a, a health problem in the gold fields, when it was called myonistitis, particularly associated with gold mining in Bendigo because of the location of gold seams in quartz rock. The way that companies and at the time governments dealt with those particular diseases was to put responsibility for them on the individual worker. So one of the reasons why this is so significant that miners' unions are coming together and saying we as unionised miners will not engage in, in, in these industries is because for years and years and years and years, the framework around these diseases were was, oh, well, miners decided to go into these mines, miners did the mining, their safety was their own responsibility. If they have acquired a, a disease, if they have become a dusted miner, it's their fault. You know, there are papers who talk about the phenomenon of dusted miners being spoken about in Dickens. You know, some people get there's a this amazing line in one of the books where uh, they might get the disease fast, they might get it slow, but only a few of them never get it. And this idea that it really was your problem because you had decided to work in these industries if you ended up with these acquired diseases. And it, it is extraordinary to think how long these diseases were associated with these work practices and yet the responsibility was not on the profiteering mine owners or the governments that, you know, harvested the wealth and the prosperity around these industries or communities that became rich by these industries that no responsibility was taken, that it was on individuals. And the idea that we are actually standing up collectively and saying, no, this is not on, is really important because you can see, and Ben, I know you have some information on this, mm. some industries are going, come on, what's wrong with a bit of silicosis? Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's it. Obviously, the mining unions uh, have been onto the uh, onto the dust diseases issue for some time, and, and now what what's happened this week is that there's been an executive meeting of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. That's the peak body for unions in this country, and that executive meeting uh, resolved to and I quote: "Take all necessary steps to ban engineered stone." By the middle of next year, if government bans are not in place by then, this will mean union members will not allow engineered stone to be transported or used on building sites across Australia. Now, this is a huge step forward. It is basically saying that the workers of this country are standing united, whether they're in a mine, whether they're doing in, in a workshop, being asked to work on engineered stone, whether they're on a construction site being asked to install it, or whether they're in trucking being asked to transport it, or even in shipping being asked to move it from one port to another. The workers are saying, no, we will not participate in this supply chain of death. And, and that's what it is. It is a supply chain of death. Yeah, and I think that's a huge, huge step um, because it does, you know, it's it's such a step change from where 
this whole debate started all those you know decades, if not centuries ago, where it was that individual's responsibility. Well, this is workers standing together across industries to say we actually all have a responsibility to keep each other safe wherever we work, whatever our industry. Uh, if we are participating in a supply chain of death, then we are not fulfilling our obligations to one another. And by standing together, we can actually force change in an industry which is actually opposing change. Despite the fact that state governments had come together and said there needs to be more regulation and we're looking at it, da-da-da, of course, that's quite a slow process. There is is an organisation, Van, and you won't be surprised to learn this, uh, there is an organisation that is claiming a ban won't solve the problem and will, in fact, put workers' health at further risk. The Australian Engineered Stone Advisory Group. Ah, the Engineered Stone Advisory Group. Mm, who have no vested interest in this whatsoever, Ben, I'm sure. Yeah, and look, as far as I can tell uh, from their very slow-loading website, their members uh, effectively are almost exclusively in the business of selling engineered stone. No way. Gosh, uh, what a coincidence. But, I mean, it, it speaks to... And we'll talk a bit more about the broader issues of greed in our economy in, in the next uh, story as well. But and we talk about issues of greed in the economy in every episode. <laughs> but I mean, this is a this is a classic case. I mean, this is almost a Dickensian case, right? It you- is. I mean, this is what is this is what's so important to to remember, and the the idea that this has been a it, like a, a decision of collectivized workers it has gone to the level of the ACTU is really important for looking at frameworks around occupational health and safety particularly the risks faced in this industry but beyond it because what usually happens is uh, industries there is no moral conscience of of capitalism like there's that wonderful image in American gods in in that in the television series with very strange series it doesn't really make a lot of sense but full of some very good images where they go and see the god of money and he never looks up from his little um calculator he's just calculating profits all the time he doesn't care that there's a war on between the other gods he's not fighting for anything he's just interested in money and by the way coincidentally looks enormously like Rupert Murdoch in that particular show (laughs) but capitalism has no conscience like it doesn't feel things it doesn't look at human beings and go oh let's be kind and corporate structures exist to actually deny the humanity of labour. That's what, that's how they can make decisions around mass redundancies and polluting and, you know, industrial health and safety compromises because it, it just thinks in terms of raw profit and shareholder returns. That's the system. And I think a lot of people presume there's some kind of bureau of good intentions or bureau of kindness or bureau of public decency that exists to make sure that that people are only ever employed in safe places and you know regulations always exist the thing is government regulations only come about if regulation is demanded otherwise capitalism just goes off and does whatever it wants you know you can see it with things like airbnb and uber you know these corporations disrupt models break things twitter is another really great example you know there's no regulation that exists before the industry comes about the Mm. industry announces itself and 
only through a long process of political communication, that is you know, workers collectivising, standing together, making demands, community standing with them, that regulations actually get imposed and you know, dangers are minimised. But often... You know, corporations are not going to act unless they're obliged to. We know this because of the, you know, the 1980s, 90s, 2000s vogue for self-regulating industries. We know they didn't work. Industries do not effectively self-regulate, not when it comes to the environment, not when it comes to worker safety, not when it comes to anything else. They just think in terms of profit. And, so, and they're like, yes. As you say, Van, and, you know, classic example is, of course, the closing the loopholes bill as well, right? So here you've got over the course of that period of time that you've just mentioned, corporations have not only um, – have not, not only uh, set out to, uh, you know, they comply with all of the laws, but they find ways to exploit loopholes in them. And then when those loopholes, people go, actually, it's not fair that $9 billion is being ripped out of the pockets of working people just because they're engaged as labour hire or because they're casual or because they work in a gig economy and, you know, those are loopholes, those those things have come about because corporations have created them after the laws were passed, so now we want to close those loopholes. Those big businesses are now funding a $24 million campaign to try and convince the Senate to not let workers have access to that $9 billion in wages that companies have been pocketing. You know, and again, they haven't done anything illegal. BHP setting up its own labour hire company, putting workers through that on lower wages has all been perfectly legal, uh, and that's what they do. Corporations find those legal loopholes. They find the gaps between laws and regulations. They find the the spot where they can maximise profit and minimise risk, and that's what they've done, and that's what they're doing here. I mean, one in four stonemasons, the, the numbers say one in four stonemasons have been exposed to engineered stone, um, uh, have been diagnosed with silicosis. That that is it's incurable. Yeah. Incurable disease. You know, it, it's amazing. And but this is the thing, like this is what they do when they turn around and go, Oh well, you know, it was your individual responsibility. If you didn't want to face the risk, you shouldn't have come to work in this industry. But I think an overwhelming number of people think that someone is like that that someone is making sure that they're going to be safe. And it's like that's actually an ongoing process. And we have this particular cycle in this country that we get Labor governments who regulate, 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 and then we get Liberal governments who deregulate, deregulate, deregulate. And while that cycle is in motion, there are new industries that sprout up, you know, manufactured stone or you know, or Uber or, you know, nose hair, automatic pluckers, whatever. And until there is a collectivisation and community mobilisation around regulation, they can be extremely unsafe. And you are absolutely right to make it, to make the argument around the closing the loopholes bill as well, because I think people don't necessarily think that they're just going to be abandoned in the workplace by their employer 
But if it's lawful, if it is lawful to exploit somebody, I hate to to spoil the, you know, like ending of capitalism in the movie, but the employers are going to exploit you. That is their business model. That is how they're calculating profit margins. And we have, we now have, you know, irrefutable evidence that this is absolutely true, right? You know, if you're not a union member and you're listening to this podcast, it's probably the first time you've tuned in because we always say join your union. And obviously today is no exception and you can do it online while you're listening. If you go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W as in week on Wednesday, you can join online. doesn't matter what industry you're in. doesn't matter if you work with engineered stone or you're in the gig economy or you're a casual or you're in labor hire or you're a nurse or a teacher or a public servant, whatever you're doing, you should be, if you've got a boss, you should be in a union. If somebody tells you how to do your job, even if they tell you you're a quote unquote contractor, join a union. Because, you know, Van, I'm a contractor and I'm in two unions. Yeah, because you're absolutely right. Like, there, you know, it's workers standing together and demanding better safety regulations, demanding their fair share demanding, even in the case of this closing the loopholes bill, all this bill will do is say that the minimum standards that apply to everybody else in an industry, whether it's through an award or through a collective agreement, um, whatever the mechanisms that exist that cover everybody else cannot be circumvented by using labour hire or some form of forced casualization, or simply by telling people they have to go out and get an ABN and become a contractor because, you know, if it's on the internet, apparently everybody runs their own small business. Like those things have ripped $9 billion in wages out of people's pockets and transferred them to the bottom line of huge corporations, many of which are based overseas, many of which are private equity firms which are the most opaque uh, black boxes of capitalism you'll ever stumble across in your life, Uh, who knows where that money goes? It goes into basically the pockets of billionaires. And quite frankly, they do not care. They are not interested in having uh, you know, a sustainable mining industry or high-quality aged care or high-quality NDIS services or making sure that the, the workforce is properly trained when it comes to uh, providing casuals to our hospitality or retail sector. That is not why they are in the game. They are not based here. They do not care about you. And even the fact that there is a counter-campaign by people who want to keep exposing stonemasons and factory workers and miners and construction workers and transport workers to the dangers, the deadly dangers of silicosis, that they are prepared to run that campaign. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that they're prepared to invest $24 million to try and stop workers getting $9 billion. That does not surprise me. They just don't think of us as people. They no. genuinely don't. They think that what, what Ben, you look at balance sheets more than I do. What are we capital cost, no, labor costs, or what? How how are we written into the balance sheet? Because it's just a, it's a process of dehumanization which is required for them to do their jobs. Because you yeah. just couldn't say, 
oh, well, you know, I'm going to condemn a member of your family to die of a lung disease by creating an unsafe workplace in the presence of a hazardous substance. You couldn't do that if you thought of the people on the other end as human because you would be a psychopath and, you know, probably be recommended that you're in some kind of residential program. Look, it's really interesting because some of these things are written down. Which I mean prison, by the way. Yeah, no, I I got that. Um, But some of these things are written down as like hours lost or days lost. Uh, That usually refers to when someone is injured in the workplace. Um, It can refer to somebody dying in the workplace, although often that's not really recorded outside of a specific incident which might be raised once with um, senior executive or, or the board if there's an investigation. You know, these sorts of things, and this is why industrial manslaughter laws are important too, right, because it's about saying that if you're going to run a business, you have some basic responsibilities They include making sure that the people who come to work for you leave that workplace safely. That should be a bare minimum, that if you're going to operate your business in Australia, you meet the minimum standards that we have set as a society around minimum wages, around minimum leave entitlements, around making sure that people are not discriminated against. These are the minimums that we as a community have said are the baseline for operating here. Now, because laws change, and as you say, Van, sometimes we have Labor and sometimes we have Liberal, you know, and loopholes get created over time, and God knows, and the federal court knows, there are armies of lawyers, you know, who spend their entire time trying to find loopholes, right? BHP is spending more money on lawyers than most small businesses will ever make in the entire course of their existence just looking at ways to reduce wages for workers by exploiting loopholes. That's They have whole teams of people who do this. Qantas, Qantas took it to the high court. And this is what does my head in about small businesses who don't make the links between like the prosperity of workers is the prosperity of small business in two ways. One, because if if you run a small to medium business and you don't have an army of lawyers, you are at an automatic disadvantage by what a much bigger corporation will do to you. You know, crowd you out, it, like Absolutely. press their advantage, the rest of it. If you want a level playing field so you as a plucky young entrepreneur can, you know, make your stake for entrepreneurial glory, you actually rely on a system that doesn't prevent, that doesn't um, provide a systemic advantage to a bigger, more powerful company. You want labor standards to be equalized across the board so economies of scale don't crush your business and the other thing is if you are a small business and overwhelmingly in this country small businesses are in uh, services and the provision of you know community services community goods community commodities you need workers to be well paid for you to have a customer base you rely on workers to be well paid. It's so interesting. Penny Wong had an absolute corker in the Senate the other day finding, because obviously the Liberals have come out and said, oh, we don't want to get wages moving. And she's found a quote from Michaelia Cash that was given to a wages inquiry saying it's really important that we keep wages low 
Michaela Yakash, former Minister for Industrial Relations, actually advocating to keep wages low. And Penny Wong rips this quote to pieces and talks about the need to get wages moving and how Labor are trying to do this. And you can imagine people are like, oh, well, you know, Labor have been in for over a year. And, you know, there haven't been wage rises across the board. It's like, well, the fact that a bunch of corporations are willing to spend $24 million on an anti-government advertising campaign in order to suppress wages probably shows just what they're up against. But it's interesting because all the Liberal Party online troll army come out whenever I um, whenever I share anything to do with Penny Wong mm-hmm. um, or industrial relations, the rest of it, and I've literally had Liberal trolls go, oh, wages going up is terrible. Workers getting paid more. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what causes inflation and the oh. spider fall in and blah, blah, and it's like, Yes, we've made it very clear on this show that what has been driving inflation has been corporate greed, the same corporate greed that is keeping wages artificially low. Well, let's let's talk about inflation like because that's a good segue because, of course, today we've had some... You're not the only one who can segue, Ben. Oh, uh, no, you, you get it. You're so good at the segue now. Um, I like to think I've had an influence. Learned from the master. <laughs> Well, today's CPI figures show inflation grew 1.2% in the September quarter. Uh, now, look, that is slightly higher than the RBA forecast, which was 1.1%. This, of course, sends um, all of the very nervous Nellies that live in uh, you know, economy land at banks and um, prediction houses off trying to re-forecast what the RBA will do and will grand mystics need to slaughter a new goose to determine whether or not to put up interest rates. And they're now saying there's a 70% chance that interest rates will go up on Melbourne Cup Day. So, you know, hopefully uh, you're back a winner to, to help offset that. But let's be really, really clear about what's driving inflation because there has been improved wages growth. In fact, there's been improvement in the minimum wage since Labor came into power. Um, The uh, enterprise agreement rates have gone up. So if you're on an enterprise agreement uh, that's just been negotiated in the last few months, you will be getting uh, pay rises likely with a three or a four, whereas if you were having to negotiate under the Morrison government, there's a lot of ones and twos out there. Um, in fact, in some cases, we're seeing fives being negotiated into enterprise agreements uh, now. That takes time to flow through into the economy. But the Federal Reserve in America, who again, Joe Biden wants to get wages moving, is saying there's absolutely no problem with wages going up by 4%. In fact, if wages go up by 4%, that still allows enough room for inflation to get back into the the band that the Fed and the RBA and all the kind of Western OECD countries want inflation, which is that 2 to 3% inflation rate. So let's be really clear here that there has been some wages growth, but that's not driving inflation in this country, despite the hysteria that uh, people like Michael Sucker and some of the liberal uh, trolls online might have around this. What's been driving inflation in this country is fuel prices. Fuel prices are up 7.2% in September and 7.9% compared to September 2022. It's the largest quarterly fuel price rises since March 2022. Now, that's driven by global oil prices, 
Obviously, Australia imports the vast majority of our oil. Uh, we use it primarily to drive our vehicles. Uh, there's a little bit in manufacturing and industry, but mostly to drive vehicles. Rents, and I know a lot of people are renting, and I know rents have gone up, but comparatively, rents only went up 2.2%. Uh, electricity went up 42 Uh now we're seeing now some trimming of that, some coming back on that. Uh, you know, these are these are not uh, these are got nothing to do with wages, right? These are these are prices that companies are imposing on and forcing through to working people. So bread prices uh, up twelve point six percent more than they were a year ago. Egg prices, nearly eight. Uh, Dairy products, almost 10% higher. Keep in mind, dairy products are costing 10% more than they were a year ago, but the biggest biggest, uh, dairy manufacturers, the companies that process milk, uh, have recently had to... uh, have been trying to tell their workforces uh, that they will not give them a wage rise. They were offering one to one and a half percent wage increases. And for the first time in living memory, 1,400 dairy workers took a 48-hour strike last week. And I talked about that on the weekend wrap. But a shout out to the United Workers Union who coordinated those community activities and brought those workers together because while prices have gone up at the supermarket, the workers have not seen their fair share of that. You know, and it's interesting how this greed plays out because, of course, supermarkets have taken a cut. Dairy farmers have got a little bit of an increase. I'm not going to sit here and accuse dairy farmers of greed on this because they have been also subject to the power of the big supermarkets for a very, very long time. But... Chris Richardson from Access Economics made a good point today too around the fact that even when the government is trying to help offset some of these costs, the greed of players in the market, big players in the market, big corporations in the market, is actually hurting working people. People might remember there was a new childcare subsidy. Some of you listening might actually be able to access it. A full third of that subsidy has been gobbled up by the providers. Again, not to increase wages, not to help the workers, not to bring on more workers, but just gone straight to the bottom line of some of the biggest corporate childcare providers in the country. This is staggering, staggering levels of greed driving inflation in this country. And it's happening at the same time as inflation is dropping in the US. France is experiencing deflation. Container costs, which is a driver, if you want to ship something from one part of the world to another, and because we're in Australia and we get a lot of stuff from overseas and we send a lot of stuff overseas, we have high container usage. Container costs are at their lowest level since data started being collected in 2016 and are 90% lower than their peak in 2021. So there are lots of indicators that suggest, in fact, prices should be 
coming down. Woolworths has today come out and said that fresh food and meat will is currently experiencing deflation. So their prices will be coming down, even though their sales income is up by 4%. They could have brought those prices down earlier, right? They could have had a 1% growth in sales income rather than 4% and helped average everyday families who shop for their fresh food at Woolworths. Coles, the numbers will be similar. They'll be similar everywhere, right? We live in a consolidated market in Australia. What Woolworths does, Coles follows and so on and so forth and vice versa. You know, it's a real problem that there is one party, well, one side of politics, liberal national side of politics, that seems to think suppressing workers, getting their fair share, is how you control the economy, how you keep inflation low, how you maintain the value of real assets and money, when the reality is we have incredibly profitable corporations who have been price gouging people. We have an over-reliance on foreign oil and a desperate need to transition to renewables, to electrify our grid, to help reduce that reliance. And yet the Liberals Nationals seem to think the only solution to all of the problems is to attack and demonise uh, working people. And, you know, Van, I don't know, did you see the Brendan O'Connor speech? You may not have seen it in uh in Parliament last week where he was announcing the new um, uh, national skills agreement. Um, This was a brilliant moment, I think, which demonstrates this point really, really well. Uh, Brendan got up, Minister Brendan O'Connor, who's the Minister for um, Skills and Training, got up, announced this agreement across all the states and territories, uh, said that it had the ringing endorsement of the ACTU and the union movement, and the Liberals booed, right? They booed. And, of course, it also has the ringing endorsement and agreement of the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, and the Australian Industry Group. And, of course, then the Liberals had to stop booing. They had to stop booing. And Brennan said, of course, there's no easier way to fire up the Liberal Party than to suggest that workers and unions are making a constructive contribution to Australia. No easier way because they are so ideologically blinded that they cannot admit that working people make a valuable contribution, not just through our labour and through our, our intellectual capacity, but through our contributions to policy, to the frameworks that help shape our commonwealth. It's a very sad, sad state of affairs for the coalition. It really is. It really is. And I just keep referring people to that amazing Penny Wong clip because it's just, you know, this this idea that that working people are expendable, that they're exploitable, that they're not human, they're not important, and, you know, the, the economy depends on crushing people is outrageous. Like, it is just, it's outrageous. And, it, like I, I said before, there is no Bureau of Being Decent 
So you have to start your own and the Bureau of Decent that you start is your union membership. That's really what it comes down to. And I know we say this every week, but until capitalism goes away, the need for trade unions is not going to go away. For, to have any power to enter in these dynamics with any chance of surviving without a lung disease, you you really have to look at the, the dynamics of collectivism and that that is your only purchase in having a bureau of being decent that's it that's it that's the tool that we've got because regulation from government does not happen independently regulation from government happens because of mobilizations of organized working people absolutely and you know we've talked before about the the failure and and the complete fallacy of neoliberal economic policy and you know we we are living uh, in in that lie at the moment and and the data just keeps on coming and coming and coming showing how much of a lie it was that you know when unemployment dropped wages would just soar and if it were, if unemployment got too high then that would cause problems because people would have too much money well it's it all really, a lie it's it is all a lie, all a lie. All a lie. We're in a cost of living crisis. Prices have gone up not because of workers' wages demands. Workers' wages demands are well within the bands expected by the uh, mystics of the RBA. Even the boss's pamphlet has admitted there has been no wages breakout. And yet unemployment unemployment has dropped to 3.6% nationally. And in our two biggest states, uh, New South Wales and Victoria, it's 3.3% and 3.5% respectively. In WA, it's as low as 3.1%. In fact, the highest unemployment rate in the country is in the liberal misgoverned state of Tasmania at 4.4%. Even that number is below the number that the uh, high priests once suggested would be the trigger for economic Armageddon and outrageous wage explosions, none of which, of course, has happened. You know, th- this concept that somehow or another economics is di- is divorced from power and political reality is one that we have to move past because as long as we accept that somehow or another there is a naturalism or a mathematical uh, truth to the way economics is structured, we will be forever trapped by those who have power because, of course, it's in their interest to make out that somehow or another these archaic and demonstrably false ideas uh, will somehow or another come to pass. Oh, look, and if you want an example of why this is all nonsense, can I point everybody to the country of Chile? Like, so in the 1970s, there was a socialist government elected in Chile and on the the day that they were elected, the Allende government, um, Allende was murdered and Augusto Pinochet took over and ran a military junta. And people know that part of the story, but in Chile the junta ran a market economy they they implemented the Milton Friedman radical free market policies of, you know, we'll just let the market decide and trickle down and this is what will get Chile out of, you know, economic poverty. And the result is almost 17% of the GDP of Chile is controlled by billionaires and social mobility is zero. 
if you're a billionaire in Chile, you stay a billionaire. And if you're poor, you stay poor. Like it's not freedom. There no. are not opportunities for people to to get out of the productive relations in which they were born or entered involuntarily, to quote my favourite Marxist historian, E.P. Thompson, in the Making of the English Working Class. So, I mean, this is the thing. Years and years, since the 1970s, oh, yeah, the free market, the free market, the free market. There is no freedom at the end of the market. You know, the logical... The logical consequence of privatisation and just letting corporations do whatever they want is no freedom, no opportunity. That's what happens. Well, you know, we we only have to look in our own backyard. The the, the debate that's happening right now is over $9 billion. Like we should not lose sight of that number because that's what's at stake here. You know, this is $9 billion, and yes, it's over 10 years or whatever it's over, but but it's a it's a lot of money, and the, the reason why big business is prepared to spend twenty six million dollars is because it wants to keep that money, and it knows that over the last decade or so, while you know the the explosion in the gig economy and using labour hire and the increase in casualisation. And not just the increase in casualization, but people working multiple casual jobs and the ability to basically erode the casual loading. People don't get the casual loading anymore. Not really. Not be and it's because of the way they're employed. They may technically get a loading, but overall they're still getting less money. And we know this. Why do we know this? Because the numbers have been done. The sums are there. It's nine billion dollars. That's that is what this is about, people. Like, you can say, oh, well, it doesn't impact me, or, you know, well, I'm not labor hire, or I'm not casual, or I'll never be You're on You're not labor hire yet, love. Yes. That's right. And that's the, I mean, you asked journalists from 15 years ago if they saw what was going to be happening in the media. You know, back in the days of a dollar a word, a dollar a word, imagine, <laughs> imagine getting paid a dollar a word. Oh, Benjamin, you and I would live in palaces a dollar a word. <laughs> you know, like ask ask people in the recording industry, you know, like yeah. ask, 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 ask taxi drivers, ask anybody else who's been subject to market disruptions that corporations and employers have used to go, oh, well, you know, like, oh, the models are completely different now and, oh, you know, we've lost our revenue base and oh, we're going to have to casualise a lot of you. You know, and it and it happens industry after industry. I, I, I just find it extraordinary when people think, oh, yeah, well, this doesn't affect me. And it's like if you have an employer, legal conditions of employment affect you. Absolutely. And can I just say this? If it's lawful, if it's lawful to pay someone less than the minimum wage. People will do it. And there are already people doing it, right? There are already people doing it, right? How long can you realistically expect your employer to pay more? How, how sustainable is the job that you have, the business that you work for, if they're in a in a quote unquote market with other competitors, other companies who are paying twenty percent, thirty percent, fifty percent less for their workforce. And people go, oh well, no one will go and work for them. Really? Because a lot of people work in for 
doing NDIS work, making less than minimum wage in the aged care sector, making less than minimum wage in media. In media, doing yeah, the in the arts, people who work for exposure. By the way, don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. You know, we see this again and again. People go, oh, well, no one's going to take a labour hire job at BHP for 25% less than they'd get on a collective agreement. And yet thousands of people do. And particularly when those are the only jobs on offer, right? Mm-hmm. So you might go, well, I'm fine now. Thanks very much, Jack. And maybe you are fine now. But will you be fine in two years, three years? Five years? What about your kids? Because they're not. Right now, the biggest cohorts of exploited workers are migrants, women, and young people. And if you think that's okay, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it is. I mean, it's that line about minimum wage, you know. The thing about people who oppose minimum wage is they're saying they would pay you nothing if they could get away with it. And they would. Marx talks about this. This is the first chapter of Capital. This is Capital Volume 1. Marx is like, look, man, they're just going to keep squeezing you. There is a very, very solid reason why a lot of money and time has been spent um, over the past near to near 200 years demonising the economic analysis of Karl Marx and trying to make Marxism into like the most evil word in the language. And it's because, and I really hate to break this to you, like people, he is completely correct in his analysis of how capitalism works. <laughs> And that's very true. Look, Ben, there's other things going on, uh, of course, as well. And one of the things that I would just I just want to bring people's attention to is that this Friday is uh, Friday, October 27th, is World Teachers Day. Now, we haven't talked about World Teachers Day on the show before in previous years, but the reason why I want to bring it up uh, this year is that the Australian Education Union and a whole bunch of civil society uh, organisations uh, are running the For Every Child campaign. And we've talked about this before on the show. And, of course, I've done some work on this campaign because 98% of public schools in this country are not funded to the minimum standard. You know, every time I say this, I just I struggle to believe that it is true, and then I go and look at the numbers, and I go, actually, it, it may well be slightly more than ninety eight percent are not funded to the minimum standard. But when you round it, it's not. How much more can you not fund if ninety eight percent? You haven't got a lot of wiggle room there. If it's like they're slightly more not funded, it's like that. I mean, that's that's pretty bad. I mean, yeah. we all know I am a light in the eye zealot for state education. I think it's. The, I think it's the. I think it is. Literally, the triumph of modernism. People want to talk about Western civilization. You know, like conservatives are always banging on about, oh, the defense of Western civilization, Judeo Christian values. Let me tell you what the triumph of Western civilization, the unambiguous one, the one that doesn't involve like land stealing or genocide, the unambiguous moral good is state education, that we manage that is just amazing and we should defend it at all costs. It's a cultural virtue to go universal access to education 
is a good thing and we are going to protect and defend it is what we should be doing. The idea that we have teachers who are still working in an environment where 98% of state schools are not funded to the minimum standard, they don't deserve World Teachers Day, they deserve World Teachers Parade and World World, World Teachers balloon launch and world teachers we love you you're amazing we can't believe you put up with this in lights in the sky you know after the referendum a lot of people got in contact with me saying it was the first campaign they worked on and they felt a real sense you know despite everything they felt a real sense of community and purpose people wrote to me saying i'd like to do more of that like I want to be out there like I really enjoyed talking to people and talking to people about issues and being part of something positive and good and constructive. And can I just say to anyone who's got the post-referendum blues, I mean 40% of us have, um, mm. that World Teachers Day and being part of the For Every Child campaign is something unbelievably proactive you can do in your community. If you believe in equal opportunity, if you believe in fairness and justice and kindness and enfranchisement and a healthy democracy and a country full of clever people who solve problems like, you know, impending environmental catastrophe, like incipient fascism, you know, unregulated global capitalism. All of these things have solutions if we've got an educated populace. And if you're looking for a campaign to give your time, um, the Every Child campaign is looking for people to take leaflets, to go letterboxing, to be out in the community as a person speaking to other people going, do you know what's really great? Kids. Kids are great. Like let's do something unambiguously positive for all children because a For Every Child campaign does not take anything away from anybody. Absolutely, there is no loss. This is not a trade-off. You know, this is an unambiguous, universal social good that if you've got some energy to burn and want to right wrongs in the universe, if you want to plant a tree whose shade you can enjoy in 20 years, and I mean this metaphorically because children are not plants, um, please participate in that campaign. We will post the details of how you can get involved and things you can do as a person in your community doing something beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. You can go to foreverychild.au. You can sign up to the campaign. You can get information there. Uh, This is, you know, as you say, Van, I think Mark Twain said, the greatness of our nation uh, is born in our public schools, you know, and it's absolutely true. When you, you look at the vast majority of Australians go to public school, the vast majority of successful Australians went to public school, uh, and you know what? It should be every public school should be a palace. Every public school should have the best possible teachers and every child that goes to a public school should get the support that they need to be the very best member of our Commonwealth that they can possibly be. So they can participate fully in social life, in in economic life, in political life, and really that's what the campaign is trying to do. It's trying to say, you know what? It's not a lot of money. It's not a lot to ask for. It's been promised again and again and again. And on World Teachers Day, I think we're going to hear a lot of noise and see a lot of activity because, you know, our teachers have been doing so much with so little for so long. 
and it's really and time. And burn them out because they're a national treasure. They are literally the treasure of our nation. Is a community of people with a vocational calling to provide education to children. Like th- that is the most precious stuff in the universe and should be facilitated and encouraged and supported. Like if you're a teacher and you're listening to this, can I just say teacher in a public school, I love you and thank you. I want to thank you for my education, in educated entirely in public schools and the extraordinary experience that my life has been because I was taught so impe- impeccably well and encouraged and allowed to be weird and, and found opportunities like my opportunities to be a feminist avant-garde theater, theater maker who writes musicals and researches QAnon and does all the crime, makes a podcast, does all this crazy stuff I do, came from the encouragement of teachers who went, you know, it's all right that you're a bit wacky. There are things we can do with you. And I have an amazing life and I owe that to my public education. You know, and I don't think I would have had the same opportunities if I had to come from money and been packed off to stay, to that other place, private school, you know, like but kind of from what I've heard, fairly conformist institutions. Generally, and yeah. when you're obliged to, to teach diversity, you teach diversity. You know, you understand what difference means and how to accommodate difference. These are all really good, really positive things. And just to indulge like a Venn overlap of some of my interests, Ben will tell you I love Star Trek, right? Like I am that person. I'm into it. We have watched every episode, every movie. We've watched the animated series and that my friends, is niche. I am way, way into Star Trek. And the idea that, you know, that beyond our planet, beyond our solar system, beyond our, there's a galaxy of stuff happening. We are only ever going to see it when we fully actualize the notion of education, research, exploration, you know, the potential of humanity to do things that currently we only dream about. There is a bridge to that. And that is. Education. Well said. I'm on one. Well said. I just went on one. No, look, it's it's well said. And as I say, this has been a promise for a long time from from this government, governments before, governments before that, and yet we're still at a situation where 98% of public schools are not funded to the minimum standard, the minimum standard, you know, it, it's an it, it should be a national outrage. If I said to you, I'm outraged. I'm absolutely I, off chops about it. If I said to people, if I stopped people in the street and said, ninety eight percent of hospitals are not funded to a minimum standard, they would absolutely demand change. If I said ninety eight percent of aged care facilities are not funded to a minimum standard, they would be absolutely outraged. We need to recognise that. It's time to fund, fully fund our public schools and maybe we can reach for the stars and come up with solutions for how we change our energy grid, solutions like the one in our good news. He's doing a segue. Ben is doing a segue. (laughs) Because there's been some good news about our biggest battery. So the... The biggest battery project on any of Australia's grids is a 2.4 gigawatt facility, uh, which will be located 25 kilometres from Melbourne's CBD, and it has now got environmental approval. That's right. Tanya Plibersek, the Minister for Environment, has approved uh, the construction 
of uh, the biggest uh, battery facility, saying, and this is quotes from Minister Plibersek, this is another step towards building a renewables future. The project will be able to store the extra energy generated by solar panels on Victorian roofs, helping to deliver a reliable, renewable energy for Victoria. We know renewable energy is cheaper, cleaner, and crucial to helping us cut emissions and reach our goal of net zero by 2050. And also keeps us away from terrifying and potentially dangerous nuclear reactors that, by the way, have not been invented yet. And I just want you to remember when Peter Dutton bangs on about how the future is nuclear, he's talking about ideas of small nuclear power, modular nuclear power, that at the moment are only theoretical. And the climate crisis is now. Uh, Renewables are cheaper Renewables don't don't create Pinky the three eyed fish, which is awesome. <laughs> and the idea that and if we want to do anything about climate like climate change, if we are serious about climate action, it is a three word slogan: renewables, renewables, renewables. So batteries in the grid, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, we need to stop pretending that there's going to be some kind of magic piece of technology that solves this for us. Uh, because there is a magic piece of technology. Well, that my point is, my it's point is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my point is, there are things that can be done now that will solve this, uh, that are solving this, um, and and the idea that. When I say wave a magic wand or a magic piece of technology that costs nothing, that requires no change, that uh, allows you know for everything to continue as it was before exactly in the same way, that's what I'm talking about by magic technology. You know, this is real technology. This is how technology works. Technology creates change. You know, the steam engine was a technological change, but it did require the laying of train tracks. You know, these are. Uh, these are real, tangible changes, uh, and this battery will support Victoria's Murray River, the Western Victoria, and South Victoria Renewable Energy Zones. It will create 365 jobs over construction and 30 ongoing, uh, and will also uh, include the construction of a small solar farm nearby, which will produce 12.5 megawatts of electricity. The whole investment uh, is $1.9 billion uh, and is being funded uh, is being funded by um, the Capacity Investment Scheme. Uh, this is phenomenally good news that these projects are getting up and running because all of that nonsense from Peter Dutton about, oh, well, renewables only work when the wind blows or the sun shines. It is a lie. It's a lie. It's all nonsense. It is absolutely outrageous. It is entirely about, you know, flattering donors and it has no relationship to reality. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly Australians want renewable power because, like, as, as a person who's now narrating documentaries about lung diseases, you know, there are cleaner and better ways of generating power than burning stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's almost the end of our show because, of course, it's been a couple of weeks since we've done a week on Wednesday, Van. So we really do have to catch up um, with our cadre and our Extend the Reach supporters. We so appreciate the people who like, share, uh, listen, obviously, to the podcast, download. this podcast will always be free to listen to, to download. As long as we do it, you'll be able to hear it. 
And there are some people who do go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday and they sign up to become supporters. They give, sometimes they just give a one-off contribution. Sometimes they give a buck a week, which is hugely appreciated. Sometimes they give uh, 10 bucks a month. They extend the reach supporters and some even give $20 a month. They are our cadre. And of course, all of that money goes into getting this podcast into the ears of more and more listeners. We want these messages to get out as far and wide as they can. And if you don't have any money or, you know, we appreciate that there's a cost of living crunch for a lot of people. I recently received an email from one of our longtime financial supporters who has been unable to continue. And a big shout out and thank you for all of your contribution. Totally understand. You've got to prioritize your family and having an income in your own home. But you can share. You can share this podcast with other people uh, because we do hold our own. We are a top 40 political podcast and we are up there fighting against the Murdochs of the world, the seven West medias of the world, Peter Costello's broad network. We are absolutely toe-to-toe with the 2GBs and the 3AWs and all of those people, let alone the fascists from overseas like Steve Bannon and Candace Owens, who we regularly beat in the rankings. And it's because listeners like, share, and some who can make a contribution and that allows us to grow the audience even more. And we absolutely love it. If you're posting about the show and you want to tag us in, that's absolutely fantastic, you know, and and we're on all platforms. I'm even on TikTok, which I find awkward because I'm quite old. But, you know, Threads, we're there, Blue Sky, we're there, Facebook, we're there. And a big shout-out to all my new Facebook followers who joined me over the course of the referendum. Thousands of people came to my Facebook page and, you know, we always put the podcast on our fronts and the rest of it but we love it when you share our stuff it's it's you know it makes us feel like we're part of a community as well as opposed to two extremely weird macroeconomics nerds who watch a lot of star trek <laughs> and uh and you know hook up over a uh a, over an internet connection <laughs> to this conversation look we know we're niche we know we know, we know. all right yeah. i'm going to read out our cadre and um Extend the reach supporters because I've got a list of their names. You ready? Go for it. <sighs> Shamila Lakal, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Bali, Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Jessica Davy, 26, Andy Stavitt, Ken Lee, Jason Paris, Mega Ichisaurus, Matt Trezise, Anne Coleman, Voskana, 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Colm Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M. Love Your Work, Yeet, Yeti Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Kibra Boris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Jim Carney, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, Jenny Forster, Seven, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Glenn, Robbie Brash, Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers. Gary Nash, 20, Billy, 3, McCabe, Nerissa, Simon Cattigal, Laura Nash, and Banjo, Naranga Man, John Sharp, and Peter Bath, and Louise Watson, slash Red, White, and Blue Lou. And extend the reach supporters are Helen, Delahaye, Kim, Murray Bardwell, Janet McCalman, Jeremy Moe, Rosie Elliott, Lara, at Robert Notfield, 1, Michael Whale, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Donald Vaughan, Damien Miley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Bennell. 
Anna Uran, Melanie Denning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood, Dedham, Sharon Kelly, Beck Lola, Richard Reverse, Someone, Vita W, Nadia Hounam, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Wickett, Graham Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, Gal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliana, and Andrew, Ibis Billet, Peter O.C., Sam Hadid, Kim Patterson, Funk and Basher, Katie Ward, Adriel Never Longbody, Sandy Longbody, Sandy Bonegart, at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Lawyer, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Adrian Valente, Mazuritsa at Herodale 68, Frank Nahaus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Terry Arthur, and Pauline Bate. Congratulations to all of you. You have made The Week on Wednesday one of the most successful independent podcasts in the Commonwealth of Australia, whether you're listening here or from a sunny beach somewhere overseas or the frozen tundras uh, of the Northern Hemisphere. We love and appreciate all of you. Join me on Sunday when we will do a weekend wrap of some of the news that comes about between now and then. And, of course, Van will be joining me again on Wednesday for episode 154 of the week on Wednesday. Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you. I miss you. Bye. Bye.